From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Every two years, the Olympic Games promise to be historic. Athletes defy odds, break records, and achieve feats unimaginable to most of us. But this year, the Games have consistently made headlines for the wrong reasons, particularly for the U.S. Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee's poor treatment and discrimination of athletes, especially Black women athletes. From Shakari Richardson's pre-Olympic suspension for smoking legal marijuana to the International Federation's ban on swim caps designed for natural black hair. Or from the testosterone testing of two Namibian runners to the decades of disregard towards the mental health of athletes. The stories are almost too many to keep track of. But thankfully, we have Rio Tobacco Mar, the director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, here to help us parse what we've watched unfold. Rhea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So as we mentioned in the introduction, in the lead up to the Olympics and throughout, news has been trickling in about drug testing, mental health needs, uniform regulation, COVID protocols. And the common denominator in all of these stories has been women, and in particular, Black women. Can you tell us What unites these stories? What do these stories tell us about the larger landscape for Black women in the States and and beyond, frankly? I think that's exactly right, Molly, because as we saw the stories come through, ranging from topics as different from natural testosterone levels to natural Black hair to swim caps to marijuana, the thing that united all of these disparate stories was the athletes who were targeted. And the athletes who were targeted were by and large Black women. Some of these rules were used to outright ban Black women from participating. You mentioned Shakari Richardson, banned because of her positive marijuana tests, or the Namibian runners, Christine Mbomba and Beatrice Mazalingi, barred because of their natural testosterone levels. And other rules uh, changed the way that Black athletes participate or limited them in ways that forced them to alter their bodies, like the natural swim cap ban, um, which could force people to alter the natural texture of their hair just to be able to put on a swim cap and compete in the Olympics. So the through line between all of these disparate examples uh, that otherwise might not have resonated as a form of uh, racism or misogyny, uh, when you look at who's targeted and who's impacted, Black women are the common thread. And why is it important to read these stories in that context rather in isolation? What, What do we gain from seeing the sort of macro level view? I think it's so tempting to dismiss each of these examples as one-offs. And in some cases, the Olympic Committee has come forward with explanations that on their face might seem plausible. But it's only when you start to both sort of dig back the explanations in particular cases and then also combine them with what you see happening in a range of other sports that you realize Uh, the obstacles these pose to Black women and Black women in particular. In a country where Black women are already among the most marginalized groups because of wage inequality and economic inequality, simply to be able to ascend to the Olympics at all is such a tremendous feat for any athlete, but particularly for athletes who are more likely to come from backgrounds where they didn't have the resources to hire a fancy trainer or engage in extensive training as a child. And to make it this far only to be blocked because of arbitrary rules or rules that are being enforced in a racist or sexist way uh, just makes it all the more painful. You know, looking at some of the specific stories here, another common theme was athletes enduring 
incredible psychological hardship and pressure and needing to protect themselves or find release from pain. So that was true for Simone Biles. That was true for Shakira Richardson, Naomi Osaka before the Olympics, and then Brianna McNeil, who had an abortion and didn't hear the door when um, an anti-doping official came and she was sort of recovering from that abortion. Is there a pressure that we need to understand here on Black women that is truly unique? A pressure to be a superwoman or the strong Black woman, but also hide the pain from people? You know, I'm thinking Shakira Richardson said in response to the suspension she received for the positive marijuana test, she said, I know that I can't hide myself, um, but in some type of way, I was trying to hide my pain. And I'm curious if, if you see a through line here with this notion of the Black superwoman. There's always been this stereotype about Black women that we are strong, that we are resilient. Even the phrase Black girl magic, I sometimes like to say to people, you know when they say Black girl magic, they don't mean literal magic, right? Black women are also human and we're not capable of enduring pain that other people can't endure. And more importantly, we shouldn't be asked to. So Black women face these insurmountable obstacles and we expect Black women simply to sort of chin up and bear it even when other people, we would sympathize and even understand what other people might uh, experience in those situations. So you talked about Shakari Richardson, and I, I think it, her case is just a perfect example of this. Of course, she was suspended from the Olympics for her positive marijuana test. And many people hearing the news had the reaction, wait a minute, marijuana is not a performance-enhancing drug. You know, if anything, we might expect mar marijuana to actually hinder the athlete's performance. So why is it that that positive test is considered a doping test? And the reason is because the Olympics take into account not just whether a drug is performance-enhancing, but whether it poses a risk to the athlete and whether it violates the spirit of the sport. And that phrase, violates the spirit of the sport, just captures so much of these subjective expectations that we have for athletes. Whose spirit and whose sport is this? And it certainly violates Shakari Richardson's spirit that she was banned for the Olympics for smoking marijuana in Oregon, uh, where it was legal, and after she learned in a quite jarring way about the death of her biological mother. So there's a way in which Black women are seen as outsiders, as not owners of the sport, they're not the spirit that we're concerned of. It's someone else's spirit that's at issue. And when our spirits crack, when Ja'Carri Richardson's spirits crack, uh, we're unforgiving. You know, after Simone Biles decided to withdraw, there was this flurry of stories about how even elite athletes aren't perfect. And Ja'Carri Richardson herself said separately, you know, I'm, I'm only human. Do you think, though, that in the case of Simone Biles, and then there was also swimmer Katie Ledecky, that there's so much pressure to top our expectations for their phenomenal performances. Do you think in some ways that this idolatry can be dehumanizing, particularly in the space of Black women? Well, I think Simone Biles in particular really faced a double-edged sword when it came to her excellence because she was expected to be excellent but not too excellent. So even before she backed out of this year's competition or some of this year's competition, you know, she had long faced uh, what some called discrimination in her difficulty scores because the difficulty scores did not uh, adequately reflect the exceptionalism of the moves that Simone Biles is able to perform and that other athletes simply cannot even attempt. And there's a way in which that artificial deflation of her difficulty scores was a way of saying, 
We want you to be good, but you can't be too good to compete. You are actually so good that we think your excellence makes this competition unfair for other athletes. And that, I think, really is a through line that you see with you know the Namibian runners as well, this idea that we expect you to be exceptional, but you can't be too exceptional. Because once you're too exceptional, that becomes a threat to other people, particularly people who are not Black women, and somehow your excellence is unfair. You know, a part of this puzzle, too, is also, and I think particularly when it comes to athletics, is the policing and the punishing around bodies and body control in general. You know, when we're talking about what women can wear, what they can consume, how they should be. And one story where this really came up was the story of runner Brianna McNeil. And in this case, it was around reproductive health. She is a track star um, who said she didn't hear the anti-doping official at her door because she was in bed recovering from an abortion. You know, she received a five-year suspension. And as of this recording, that suspension was just upheld. How do you think that Brianna's story falls into a larger pattern and history of regulation over Black bodies and Black women, and particularly in this reproductive sphere? Well, I think the fact that Brianna McNeil, you know, initially missed the doorbell and then later wasn't entirely uh, forthcoming about the reason she had missed the doorbell really reflects so much abortion stigma and stigma that we place on people who need abortion care and who receive abortion care. It's completely understandable that she initially did not feel comfortable telling uh, Olympic officials and later the entire world, you know, the reason why she was in bed that day and not able to answer the door and the reason for her medical procedure. And instead of uh, empathy... Uh, with what was a deeply personal experience that was tinged, she has now said, by uh, regret with the fact that part of the reason she chose not to continue her pregnancy was to be able to complete in the 2020 Olympics, which, of course, because of COVID, were then postponed until 2021. So what an unimaginable heartbreak for Brianna McNeil. And rather than empathy for her situation and the choices that she made that were best for or that she believed were best for her at the time, instead were met with, you know, skepticism, fear, and ultimately what feels like a real overreaction, five-year ban. Just to be clear, there is no allegation that Brianna McNeil actually was engaged in doping. The only thing she did wrong, and I, I'm using scare quotes and you all can't see them on the podcast, but the only thing that she did wrong was uh, missing uh, a test, right? Because she was recovering from her abortion procedure. Another area where there has been sort of this body control is in dress codes and what people can wear. And um, one example that you wrote about in a blog post sort of on this issue is the the swim caps. Can you tell us about this debate over the swim caps, why they were banned, and what is the legacy of policing around Black hair? The swim cap ban is another example that just has so many layers to peel back. So just to explain what we're talking about here, There was a company that designed a swim cap to better fit natural black hair. This was a huge area of need in the black community. Chlorinated pool water can be very damaging to natural black hair. Traditional swim caps often aren't large enough to contain natural black hair. So this was a need that folks in the black swim community saw and attempted to meet with this product. So why is a product like this, which is designed to help people banned? Well, the reason given was that it does not, quote, conform to the natural shape of the head. And this, of course, begs the question, well, whose head and whose natural head? Because there's nothing unnatural about my head with the hair uh, and the way that it grows out of my head the day that I was born. And so in order to fit into a smaller swim cap, that would require either cutting my hair or chemically altering the texture of my hair. So again, this question of whose spirit, whose sport, whose natural head shape. It's also worth pointing out that much like the Shakari Richardson marijuana test, 
There's nothing about the swim cap that could create an unfair advantage. And then we have to tie this back to the history of racially segregated pools, because why is it so important to encourage and embrace Black participation in swimming, we can't understand what this swim cap ban means without considering the legacy in America. In the 1920s and 30s, you know, public pools uh, were all the rage and were constructed. Um, and most of those pools were racially segregated. When Black people attempted to use the pools, people were frequently uh, not only turned away, but beaten, um, mutilated, and really subjected to extreme physical violence and terrorism as a way of keeping them away from the pools. When public pools were integrated, we saw white communities move to private pools uh, and react by you know, draining public pools, filling public pools with acid, or otherwise making them unusable for Black swimmers. And when you think about that legacy of racially segregated pools, and it translates directly today into uh, lower abilities to swim in the Black community, we know Black children are uh, multiple times more likely to drown than white children. All of this stems from our racist history around pools and swimming. So you just have to understand the swim cap ban in that historical context because it comes in a sport that has been so historically closed to Black swimmers. And this was a real opportunity for the Olympics uh, to make a show of inclusivity toward Black swimmers. And instead, they took the opposite approach. And one of the reasons, in addition to the one that you mentioned, that they also said they also banned the sole caps was that they had never been used before, which it just highlights everything you just said. Like, so much of this is about conformity and about not seeing that the the fact that it hasn't happened before is part of the problem. And I think that these stories really highlight that, that this is not about athleticism. Yes, we're talking about the Olympics, but this is about people's comfort levels. How much of what we understand about discrimination is about, or resistance to change, is about this discomfort? I mean, this came up not just with the swim caps, but with the Norwegian women's handball team. They were fined for wearing shorts instead of, you know, the revealing bikini bottoms that are customary. And it doesn't look like the rule has anything to do with performance. So how much is just that people in power want things to stay the way they are and don't see a problem with that? Yeah, well, I think there's at least two strands in what you just said, Molly, and possibly quite a few more. And one is this idea that, you know, discrimination is so often dismissed as benign or uh, as not having bad intent because it's not necessarily animus against folks who haven't been included, but rather it's a desire to continue the way that things were. And the way that things were all too often meant excluding members of marginalized communities. And so this nostalgia for the past or of, for tradition often is embedded with these notions of exclusion. Your story, Molly, immediately reminded me uh, of the experience Serena Williams had at the French Open a few years back when she attempted to compete in a cat suit, uh, which was medically necessary uh, to prevent her from uh, developing blood clots as a complication she'd had when she delivered uh, the birth of her first child. And she was banned from wearing the cat suit because essentially that's not what we wear to play tennis. And it just begs the question, well, who is the we and why why have things been done that way? And do we have a good reason not to change? And do we have a good reason to prevent someone from wearing a medically necessary attire that, again, posed no athletic advantage, but was necessary for her to be able to compete safely? I think in the case of the bikini bottoms, um, this happened at the European Beach Handball Tournament. But, you know, this was just phenomenal, uh, phenomenal work on the part of these teammates who together agreed not to wear the bikini bottoms and instead to incur the fine, about $175 uh, fine to each of them for not competing in bikinis and instead wearing shorts. And again, when you think about what is the reason for the bikini bottom requirement, it certainly is not that wearing a bikini bottom is necessary to play beach handball because 
surprise, the men's beach handball team does not compete in bikini bottoms. So we know it's not about athleticism and it's not about the sport. Again, it's about making the sport accessible and accessible to who? Accessible to men who are watching the sport and want to watch women play beach handball and bikini bottoms, notwithstanding their discomfort. I think it's also about who's in the control room, right? Like, you know, a piece of the story we haven't touched on is who is actually calling the shots here. You know, what bodies are behind the suspension, the rules about testosterone, the regulations on uniforms. And, you know, in the case of the Olympics, we've seen more parity in terms of who's participating. But at the leadership level, you know, only one third of executive members are women. And, you know, so I I think that in terms of who represents and who regulates, you know, why does it matter that leadership is still demographically unequal is is maybe the question we should be addressing here. Well, you really see it play out in things like the bikini bottoms, which just feels so arbitrary even to most people. And we immediately understand there's no good reason for this disparity, what men wear and what women wear. I think many people had the same reaction to the ban on Naomi Osaka from the French Open for refusing to speak to reporters. Again, Is it really necessary for tennis stars uh, to speak to reporters as a condition of the game? You know, and if we think about this as any other kind of job, if you imagine Naomi Osaka working in an office or working anywhere else um, and having some component that's really not essential to getting business done, which in this case is the business of playing tennis, right? We would find a way to accommodate her. And in fact, we likely would have to find a way to accommodate her under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But instead, there's this expectation that somehow... Um, We can put demands on athletes that are totally unrelated to the sport that they're playing and find them and ban them altogether when they refuse to uh, to comply or to sort of to dance for us on request. You know, another form of discrimination that we haven't talked about yet, but have alluded to in passing is around this testosterone testing. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier two Black teenagers, Christine Mboma and Beatrice Masalingi from Namibia, you know, were subjected to testing before they um, were allowed to run in the 400 meters. And much of the controversy around testosterone testing stems from the news about Castor Semenya, the the two-time Olympic runner from South Africa, being forced to modify her natural testosterone levels because of new rules around testosterone from the World Sporting Organizations. Can you explain what these rules are and where they come from and why they're discriminatory? Sure. Well, I'm so glad you started with Castor Semenya, Molly, because it's impossible to understand what happened to Christine Mboma and Beatrice Masalingi without understanding where these rules came from. Castor Semenya is a Black South African runner, and sort of similar to Simone Biles, she had the problem of being too good. Um, She was too fast, and she was subjected to uh, all kinds of humiliating criticisms, including questions about whether she was really a woman or whether she was 100% a woman. She was subjected to invasive uh, gender verification testing. And one of the things she was subjected to was blood tests to determine her natural testosterone levels. Now, the idea that an athlete should conform to an average testosterone level in order to compete is sort of antithetical to everything that we know about the Olympics, which by definition are not about people who are average. They're about people who are exceptional. They're about people who are extreme. I mean, Olympic competition celebrates, right, the extreme, extreme levels of human achievement. And yet when it comes to Black women, this notion uh, that somehow she really wasn't woman enough 
Uh, one way in which Castor Semenya was different uh, was not only weaponized against her, but actually used to ban her from the competition altogether. And to understand why this is racist and sexist, it's just so useful to compare it to how other athletes' exceptionalism has been treated. And a terrific example of this is Michael Phelps. You know, Michael Phelps, uh, much like Castor Semenya, is an exceptional athlete. He has a genetic mutation that means his body produces half the lactic acid of other athletes, which means his muscles don't fatigue as quickly or they're able to recover more quickly. He's also double jointed in his ankles. And of course, he's six foot four, which is well above an average height for a man in this country. And yet there never was there a call for Michael Phelps to take a pill to force his body to produce more lactic acid or to bring his lactic acid up to a quote average level or for Michael Phelps to have surgery um, to correct his ankles. They were no longer double jointed. All things that undoubtedly contributed to his phenomenal success. But when it came to Castor Semenya, she was forced to make a decision to actually take medication to alter her naturally occurring hormone levels or be banned from competition altogether. And that rule, the rule that, and Castor Semenya challenged that rule and she lost at every level and the rule became final, which is why in the latest Olympics, it was used to bar two runners from Namibia who again had naturally high testosterone levels. You touched on it, but it's I'm still processing that somebody's natural body, like what what they are just bringing because they were born, is being regulated, and that the solution. And I think this is a, another interesting point about all of this is the solution proposed was that you need to change your body. How do you even make sense of that? Well, unfortunately, Molly, it it's not all that foreign because I think this is something we see in discrimination cases all the time. And it brings us back to the hair discrimination cases, right? This expectation that Black people can be expected to alter the natural texture of their hair just to come to work or to come to school. Something that's really unthinkable when you think about that applying, you know, to white people. No one has ever required white people to chemically alter their hair the way that it grows out of their head simply to be considered professional or to conform with the school dress code. But that is something that all too often is expected of Black students and Black workers. And I think at the Olympics, we're seeing that play out at this whole other level where now we're not just talking about your hair, the way it grows out of your head, but we're actually talking about altering your internal chemical makeup in order to conform to these standards. And, you know, again, what is the standard? You know, who decides what's average and where we draw those lines? And why is it that, again, we want our athletes to be exceptional, but not too exceptional? And that seems to be true only when it comes to Black women. Another theme that we've seen translate from the Olympics back home is the trials faced by athletes who become pregnant. You know, last year, runner Allison Felix made headlines when she said that she lost her sponsorship from Nike because she became pregnant. But it's not just Olympic athletes who are facing the choice between a healthy pregnancy and a paycheck. And we in the Women's Rights Project have litigated a number of pregnancy discrimination cases involving women who were pushed out from jobs as pilots, as flight attendants, as EMTs. So it's not just Olympic athletes and police officers and firefighters. It's women in a range of professions who find uh, that their employers are unwilling to make even basic accommodations like an extra bathroom break, ability to sit down on the sales floor, things that would make it possible for workers to continue to carry their pregnancy and their jobs. I'm also reminded of some of the workplace discrimination cases we do. I'm thinking of a case some years ago where a police officer was pregnant and the uniform that she was forced to wear just, it didn't 
It literally didn't work if you were pregnant. And, well, there were no real viable accommodations made. And it was terribly heartbreaking. She really wanted to be in this job and could still perform it while pregnant. And I'm sort of thinking about, you know, in many ways, we're talking about athletes. This is workplace discrimination. Like, this is their workplace. How do you see what's happening at the Olympics, you know, sort of in this, it's this microcosm, this very intense microcosm, but how do you see it play out in the sphere that you work in all the time, you know, like in cases across the United States? Well, pregnancy discrimination is such a great example, Molly, because employers often have this uh, image of the ideal worker or the average worker, and invariably that worker is a non-pregnant person. And we act like pregnancy is something that's exceptional or unusual when, in fact, most pregnant people do work. And, of course, all of us are here only because somebody one day was pregnant with us. So there's this idea that somehow the conditions of life that are uh, not only ordinary but actually things to be celebrated – are somehow abnormal, unusual, exceptional, in a, again, an exceptional in a bad way. And that's what's so remarkable at all of this is that when is an exception a good thing and when is an exception a bad thing? And can, in fact, an athlete be considered uh, both at the same time? How does that play out? I also wanted to bring up, you know, we've talked about natural testosterone levels, but there was also a case of um, C.C. Telfar, who was ruled ineligible to run in the U.S. Olympic trials because she's transgender and has higher testosterone levels as a result. The testosterone rules are impacting her as a trans athlete. And I'm curious, you know, what kind of message does that send to trans youth about their future inclusion in Olympics in general? Well, the exclusion of CeCe Telfer is so tragic, and it's just worth pointing out. Obviously, CeCe, as you mentioned, is a transgender runner, but most of the runners that we've seen excluded under this rule are not, in fact, transgender women. They're cisgender women. And so I just want to name that because it really lays bare the lie behind the one of the supposed motivations for this rule, which is the notion that somehow cisgender women need to be protected from transgender women. In fact, these rules are harming both transgender and cisgender women. And so far, it seems like they've been used more often than not to ban runners who are cisgender and not transgender. So that certainly doesn't help anyone. But again, it comes back to this idea of who's a threat and who is so good or so excellent as to be unfair to other runners. And when it comes to Black women, whether transgender or cisgender, there's this notion that once they become too good or too fast, that that is unfair to other runners, rather than something to be celebrated at the Olympics, which again are about those exceptional forms of achievement. I think the exclusion of CeCe Telfer also sends such a damaging message this year more than any other year. Because in this year, we have seen in the state legislatures an unprecedented number of states move to ban trans students, largely trans girls and young women, from participating in student athletics simply because of who they are. And we've been successful in blocking uh, at least two of those laws in court in Idaho and West Virginia. But nonetheless, the message that has been sent to trans young people is deeply disturbing. And it's scary when you think about the very, very high levels of harassment and discrimination these students already face and the fact that trans children already have exceptionally high rates of suicidal thoughts and suicidality. So when you have somebody who is as exceptional as Cece Telfer, someone we should be holding up as a model to our trans young people to say, here is something to aspire to, not only is she cut down as, as a hero, but in fact banned from competition altogether simply because of who she is, that's exactly the wrong message to be sending to our trans young people this year. You know, in in contrast to some of the really damaging messages that have come out of these stories, there is actually something also quite remarkable about some of the responses to these stories. We saw and felt 
a new and hopeful turn in that some athletes like Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles were choosing to prioritize themselves and their bodies first, even when no one else was willing to do that for them, even the bodies that were there in theory to protect them. You know, Naomi Osaka withdrew from Wimbledon to focus on her mental health. And Simone Biles said that she also needed to remove herself in part because of some of the the pressures over handling the the Larry Nasser um, scandal and, you know, his serial abuse of athletes that she was also affected by. And I'm curious, do you think in some ways, amidst all the, the sort of negative messaging, that this decision, this kind of modeling by these athletes was in itself a little bit revolutionary? I think the only reason we're even hearing about these stories, Molly, is because the athletes actually started to fight back. That's why we're hearing about this. Because imagine if Naomi Osaka had gone ahead and spoken with reporters, she never would have been fined $15,000. We wouldn't have heard about it. Or if the beach handball players had said, you know what, we'll wear the bikini bottoms. Again, they never would have been fined and we never would have heard about it. So part of why we're seeing these stories pop up more and more this year, I don't think it's because there's more discrimination happening. It's because we've seen athletes really stand up and say, you know what, I'm not going to stand for this, even if it comes at great personal cost to myself. Christine Mboma and Beatrice Mazzalinghi could have taken the medication to alter their testosterone levels and competed. And I suspect if they had made that choice, we never would have heard about either of them here in the United States. But because they didn't, because they bravely stood up and challenged rules that are unfair, We do know their names. We are talking about them here on this podcast. And that, I think, really gives me hope. A lot of what we've discussed today are issues that absolutely exist at home. You know, disparities in drug criminalization, disparities in dress codes, trans participation in sports. Do you think that the intensity of these conversations around the Olympics and the questions they've raised will affect the larger conversation on these issues back in the United States, back home? And do you see positive movement or or do you fear retrenchment? Well, I always have to look on the bright side, Molly. And I do actually take tremendous, tremendous strength from the fact that so many athletes, in particular so many Black women athletes, this year were able to speak up in a way that we haven't seen in past Olympics. You know, when you talk about the struggles that athletes, even Olympic athletes face, being in many ways uh, analogous or the same struggles that people face at home, you know, the Larry Nasser sexual abuse scandal immediately brings to mind, to me, the Title IX rule promulgated by then-Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, which severely limited schools' obligations to respond to reports of sexual assault. And one of the most shocking things about that rule, which was issued under President Trump, was the idea that even the Larry Nassar scandal would not have met the Betsy DeVos standard for reporting sexual assault because the students reported to other coaches initially and not to the right Title IX official. And I realize that may seem far afield for this conversation, but it's just so amazing to highlight the ways that the struggles these athletes are facing in so many ways lay bare the struggles that ordinary student athletes, the rest of us non-Olympic students, um, are facing at home. And when you think about the attention that Simone Biles was able to bring and to, to keep on the Larry Nasser scandal, you know, I'm hopeful that that creates pressure uh, at home as well to change some of those rules. And just curiosity, where do we stand with that Title IX standard right now under the Biden administration? The Biden administration has promised uh, to review and rescind the standard, but we won't receive a new rule from them until May of 2022. Well, I look forward to talking to you or 
having you back on the podcast then and we can we can talk about that more and and all all the work that you do. Thank you so much for having this conversation and for the the blog post that that inspired this this conversation. Thank you so much, Ria. Thank you, Molly. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more about the work the Women's Rights Project is doing or take action to support the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which would help protect the health and economic security of pregnant workers, go to ACLU.org. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.